This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aljazeera.com forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aljazeera.com forward slash earthquakes. We're almost five months into Israel's war on Gaza. And among the institutions whose reputations have taken a beating over their coverage, the New York Times. A German film festival worthy of its own award for the worst performance in tacit support of an Israeli genocide. And why bother investigating war crimes in Gaza when Israeli soldiers are documenting those crimes and incriminating themselves? Since Israel launched its assault on Gaza in October, many Western news outlets have seen their credibility take a hit, accused by audiences and staff members alike of succumbing to Israeli propaganda. That includes one of the world's best-known publications, the New York Times. A notorious case in point, an investigation the Times published back in December, which alleged that Hamas deliberately weaponized rape and sexual violence on October 7th. Those claims have since been unsubstantiated, if not disproven, revealing the Times's pro-Israeli, anti-Palestinian bias and leaving the paper's newsroom riven by dissent. But for the Times's critics, including some of its former reporters, the article is a mere symptom of an age-old problem, a persistent double standard in the stories the paper deems fit to print on Israel and Palestine and those it does not. The role of the New York Times is not defined by its circulation. It's defined by the fact that it sets the agenda. That's number one. Number two, most newspapers do not have foreign bureaus, and so they will run the Times foreign coverage. So that's the power of the Times. It sets the agenda. Starting with something that is definitely not breaking news, the American newspaper of record, the New York Times, has a track record of supporting Israel. What is new are the stakes. Israel is on trial for genocide at the International Court of Justice. Core to its propaganda effort has been framing Hamas's attacks on October 7th as extraordinarily sadistic, like something out of the ISIS playbook. The wholesale massacre mutilation, rape, and abduction of as many citizens as the terrorists could find. Enter the Times and this story, published in late December. It accused Palestinian militants of weaponizing rape and sexual violence, systematically unleashing it on Israeli women and men. A lurid allegation, a sensational story, but one that the evidence simply fails to support. When the New York Times said, We've done a two-month-long investigation. We interviewed 150 people, and we found a broad pattern of sexual violence on October 7th. That, for a lot of people, just uh, closed the case. If the New York Times is saying it, then it must be true. I even had friends who know how much Israel misrepresents things and lies who said, Ali, now surely you have to give some credence to what it's saying. 
but it's a case of journalistic fraud because it just doesn't deliver the goods. The principal criticism lies within the main claim, which is that not only did sexual assault and occasions of rape occur, but that they were used systematically. Since that report has been published, major flaws have emerged, not just um, in the contents itself, but also when it comes to the actual journalists and authors behind the report. Alternative U.S. news outlets, subscriber-funded ones like Mondovice, Electronic Intifada, and The Grey Zone went to work debunking the Times' story. They noted the article contained zero direct testimony from victims, that the alleged eyewitnesses the paper quoted were either anonymous or of dubious credibility, that the family of a woman killed on October 7th disputed the Times' assertion that she had been raped. Another of the Times' sources accused the reporters of pressuring them to speak, saying it was important for Israel's PR effort. One of the reporters involved, Anat Schwartz, had never filed a news story before October 7th. She is a filmmaker whose Wikipedia page said she had worked for Israeli intelligence. Had the Times done its homework, its editors would have known that Schwartz's social media accounts revealed she had liked some disturbing posts, including one advocating turning Gaza into a slaughterhouse, a post South Africa included in its case against Israel at the ICJ. Not that the story was Schwartz's idea, as she explained to Israeli Army Radio. זו הצעה של הניו-יורק-טיימס-אקטלקולה-מחקר-כל-התחקירה-הזאת. And yet you have this person who worked for the Israeli intelligence, who wasn't a journalist, and who liked on social media these blood-curdling calls for the decimation of Palestinians in Gaza. And that's the person you hire to report on your story. Disparity between standards is staggering. The New York Times article had an enormous impact. I've seen it cited repeatedly. Uh, even by some human rights organizations. But I have to say, I think that it had less influence than it might have had if independent media outlets had not exposed the flaws in it. The New York Times is used to getting away with this, and this time they didn't. Critics of that Times report included people on the inside. The paper's podcast, The Daily, planned to produce a version of the story, but dropped the project following dissent in the newsroom over concerns about the journalism. Roughly six weeks later, when UN officials highlighted quote-unquote credible allegations that Israelis had raped or sexually assaulted Palestinians they have imprisoned, including children, the Times failed to cover the story. Then there is the writing the paper has published by Thomas Friedman. A former Jerusalem bureau chief turned columnist, Friedman infamously backed the 2003 U.S.-led invasion of Iraq that was based on lies and did so in the most offensive 
cavalier way. And what they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house from Basra to Baghdad and basically saying, well, suck on this, okay? This time around, Friedman concocted a column comparing the Middle East to an animal kingdom, with America cast as an old lion, Iranians as wasps, and Hamas as some kind of spider. When he likens the Palestinians and various other players in the region to animals, it's horrifyingly offensive at a time when the Israelis are saying that the Palestinians in Gaza are human animals. And even more offensive than that is treating a situation like this as some kind of fable, a barnyard story, rather than actually understanding the reality of the Palestinians, that this is an oppressed people, this is an occupied people. It's classic colonialism, classic uh, racism, and wherever you look in a settler colonial project, the British in Kenya or India, uh, they spoke in the same language and they used overwhelming force to subdue a population that they considered less than human and only capable of understanding violence. Friedman in the Iraq war was the famous one who said, we hit Iraq because we could. Thomas Friedman is one of the spokespeople for that twisted ideology, and that's why he does as well as he does. The New York Times is not alone in failing its American audience on the Gaza story. There was the Wall Street Journal report on Israel's allegation that UNRWA, the relief agency so many Palestinians depend on, had been infiltrated by Hamas. The paper swallowed Israel's unsubstantiated side of that story, hook, line, and sinker. There's CNN and the fake news beheaded babies narrative. Babies and toddlers were found with their heads decapitated. Neither CNN nor the Journal, however, are considered America's news outlet of record, the way the Times is. But should it be? Despite some worthwhile investigations since October 7th, like this one showing the destruction caused by 2,000-pound Israeli bombs, that does not begin to address an imbalance that goes back decades. The unmistakable pro-Israel bias coming out of the Times' Jerusalem Bureau, where Chris Hedges worked in the early 2000s. You have had more than one case where the reporter assigned to Jerusalem, Ethan Bronner, for example. His children are serving in the IDF. I mean, imagine that, if a Palestinian reporter covering Gaza, his kids were in an armed wing of any Palestinian faction. So I, sick of the one-sided coverage, used vacation time to go to Hanayunis and write a magazine piece for Harper's called A Gaza Diary. That was published and I was informed that I would never report again from the Middle East for the New York Times. I'm an Arabic speaker, by the way. They don't have a lot. So you pay a heavy price if you attempt to report. We requested interviews with numerous reporters at the Times and a spokesperson there. All of them declined. Instead, the paper sent this statement. We remain confident in the accuracy of our reporting and stand by the team's investigation which was rigorously sourced and edited. We could have asked about the paper's famous motto, 
the one created in 1897 that still adorns its masthead today, and perhaps suggested an edit. Something like all the news that's fit to print, and some that clearly isn't. Germany is under a long shadow of censorship when it comes to Gaza, a situation that is so grim it can be comedic at times. The latest example came at a film festival in Berlin where an Israeli and a Palestinian teamed up to win an award. Minakshi Ravi is here with more. The Berlinale is one of the so-called Big Five film festivals worldwide and is a major cultural institution in Germany. It was already facing criticism for its silence on the genocide in Gaza. Several filmmakers pulled out in protest and festival workers demanded the organizers call for a ceasefire. It all came to a head when No Other Land, a film about the ethnic cleansing and settling of Palestinian villages in the West Bank, won the award for Best Documentary. The film was co-directed by Palestinian activist Basil Adra and Israeli filmmaker Yuval Abraham. I am Israeli, Basil is Palestinian. And in two days, we will go back to a land where we are not equal. I am living under a civilian law and Basel is under military law. This situation of apartheid between us, this inequality, it has to end. The festival quickly distanced itself from Abraham's remarks, which were hardly controversial. The German press and politicians criticized Abraham, a Jewish Israeli, calling his statement anti-Semitic. Berlin's mayor said the words were intolerable. The country's culture minister, who was criticized for applauding the filmmakers, then clarified she was clapping only for Abraham. All in all, a ridiculous example of the toxic climate in Germany for any discussion about the war in Gaza. A Berlin-based coalition of arts and culture workers called it an ever-present atmosphere of fear, self-censorship and suspicion on social media and in the workplace, in institutions and on the street. Israeli media went all in on the story as well. Threats against the makers of No Other Land have intensified and Yuval Abraham, who says his family in Israel has been targeted by right-wing mobs, says he's now too afraid to go back home. Thanks, Mila. After Hamas's attacks on October 7th, Israeli leaders spoke openly about the annihilation of Gaza. They said there were no innocents there, called Palestinians animals with no right to exist. They were inciting a genocide, a message that was clearly heard on the battlefield because in one video after another, Israeli soldiers have recorded their own war crimes, celebrating as they looted homes, destroyed houses, or set them on fire filming as they mocked, humiliated, and assaulted Palestinian captives. It is a sign of the impunity they think they have that so much of that material has been brazenly posted on social media. Now, in a way, Palestinians have seen this kind of thing before, going back to 1948. But never have the images, the videos, been this widespread, explicit, and barbaric. The Listening Post has collected some of that material and asked three experts on human rights and torture to assess it. First, a viewer warning. Many of the images in this report are difficult to take in.
There has been a remarkable number of videos posted by Israeli soldiers on social media depicting themselves pillaging property, mocking the death and destruction that they are causing, and uh, most egregiously uh, torturing, humiliating, and mocking uh, detained Palestinian prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> the images of mass arrests, of torture of Palestinians, of numbering their bodies, which is reminiscent of images all of us have seen from Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. These images are testament to what Palestinians have long been saying, which is that this, this settler colonial regime is utterly violent. They show the nature through which this genocide is unfolding in the Gaza Strip. They also show the extreme brutality and torture, violence, utter disregard of human life, transforming these violent conducts into a spectacle to be viewed and watched uh, on social media posts. They lack specific intelligence about who actually might be Hamas. And because they lack intelligence, they therefore are rounding up everyone in order to uh, hope to extract information through interrogation. The fact that they've been stripped to their underwear is, you know, a manifestation of cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment, which is also illegal in addition to torture. The fact that they're photographing these things, it's like trophy shots. What this depicts, I think, very vividly is dehumanization and torture. You know, the idea that somebody can be just like their body is just being attacked, you know, in their most vulnerable position. His hands are bound behind his back. He's lying face down, soldiers stepping on his face. In a sense, it epitomizes torture in general, purposefully harming someone who's in custody. That custodial relationship is a particularly vulnerable one where, you know, the custodians have all the power and the prisoner who is, in this case, not only on the ground and tied up, but completely powerless. The images are showing us and telling us how central imprisonment or carceral practices are to this settler colonial regime. The torture, humiliation, uh, and degrading conduct against Palestinians is not simply restricted to the Gaza Strip. There are also images and videos that have been circulating from the West Bank. Since October 7th, over 7,000 Palestinians have been detained which is a number unheard of uh, over the past uh, decade. Israeli soldiers have quite remarkably taken to converting their massive, really unprecedented, destruction of Palestinian homes, hospitals, mosques, universities, churches, schools, into entertainment videos. There's one uh, video where Israeli soldiers are showing some residential homes that they've set on fire and attached a, a song. Fire. This house is on fire. 
There have been uh, many, many images of uh, uh, Israeli soldiers who've ransacked Palestinian homes and confiscated their personal goods. Uh, one in particular is the red negligee that uh, appears to be seen in so many Israeli videos where Israeli soldiers are mocking and advertising their very deliberate intrusion of the home of a Palestinian woman, the confiscation of her most intimate apparel, uh, and flaunting that in a way that's definitely intended to be provocative and humiliating. The videos further reinforce a discourse that is coming out of every sector of the Israeli official machinery, where all Palestinians are the enemy. Many officials have said they deserve to be eliminated. And you see it manifested in that kind of joie de vivre, you know, that soldiers are expressing as they destroy uh, Palestinian homes. And there is a consumption of this kind of image that kind of fortifies the anger, the hatred, the anti-Palestinian sentiment, and the kind of complete disregard of the humanity of Palestinian civilians. There's such a high level of confidence among these IDF soldiers that they can do whatever they want. To say to the whole world, look at what we're doing to Palestinians in Gaza, look at how we are brutalizing detainees, look at how we're humiliating every single man, woman, and child as we destroy their homes, set fire to them, uh, and make fun of it. Uh, and they are provoking and challenging the whole world uh, to say, we can do this, we can get away with it, and no one in the world can stop us. No Israeli has found themselves sanctioned uh, by the international community, by countries that have these tools, which again has only reinforced the belief of Israeli soldiers that they are immune, that they are exempted from uh, uh, complying with international laws, from basic human rights laws, uh, that they are above the law. Since the beginning of this genocidal war, reservists have been called up. And who are the reservists? They are the entire proportion of the Israeli society. There are teachers, professors, students, doctors, medics, artists, writers, journalists. These images, they are not only directed to a small audience, they are directed to a broad audience. There's a long-practiced history of racializing and dehumanizing Palestinians. These images and these videos entirely show how Israeli violence is also not only directed towards Palestinian livelihood, but also their material beings, so their houses, their, their belongings, eliminating Palestinian existence. History has taught us that the dehumanization of subjects is essential to the infliction of violence. I think Israel has perfected this in discourse and in practice, but this is not new. It dates back to the beginning of this state through which Palestinians were expelled, degraded, humiliated, killed, and effectively, forcibly disappeared.
And finally, this past week, more than 50 international broadcast journalists signed a letter calling for free and unfettered access to Gaza. The letter was addressed to the states responsible for cutting off the Strip from the outside world, Israel and Egypt. Since October 7th, only a few foreign reporters have made it into Gaza, mostly those embedded with the Israeli military, and they were not allowed to speak with Palestinians which left us to rely on the courageous work of local journalists, an unprecedented number of whom have paid with their lives. It is long past time that Israel and Egypt let journalists in the awful scenes this past week in Gaza City, the Israeli military's massacre of more than 100 Palestinians who were lining up for food simply underlines how important that journalistic access can be. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.